Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Batir. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, everyone, and happy week of Thanksgiving. Whenever I think of Thanksgiving, I think of being thankful for the resources that we can get from the land, that being the energy we produce, that being the food that we can produce or acquire, and that being that that connection to something greater than ourselves, kind of that connection to the rest of the world. When I think about this, I, I often think how or who is really embodying this this mindset of thankfulness and I always go back to the indigenous tribes of North America and really of the world. So for this week of Thanksgiving, I wanted to highlight just one of those stories on how the Fort Nelson First Nation, this is an indigenous tribe in Northeast British Columbia, how they're tackling the energy transition. And they are really, as as Chief Gale put it, they're not looking at 2050 or that being 30 years out. They're really looking at the next seven generations and how to how to provide the resources that the next seven generations need, that being the food, the water, the energy for for abundant life. So I'm going to stop rambling now and let's get into the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batir. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. Today, I am here with Chief Charlene Gale of the Fort Nelson First Nation and John Ebel, Geothermal Programs Manager for the Tudeca Geothermal Project. Today, we are talking about the Tudeca Geothermal Project in electricity development by the first Fort Nelson First Nation. Chief Gale, John, thank you for joining me today on the podcast. If you would please, Share with me and the audience your background and introduce us to the Tudeca Geothermal Project. Well, thank you. I just uh, wanted to thank you for having us here today. Um, I'm Chief Charlene Gale. I'm from the Fort Nelson First Nation, and I'm also the chair of the Daytai Corporation Board. And before I begin, I just wanted to thank you, Joe, from the Energy Transition Solutions for interviewing us today and also to the sponsors AWS Energy for sponsoring the show. Very pleased to be here with my colleague, John Ebel from Barclay Group to uh, just talk about the two-day Ka geothermal that's happening in the Fort Nelson territory, which is Northeast British Columbia. 
So this geothermal project is taking over a Clark Lake gas unit that is towards the end of its production life. And this project is really important for the region in so many ways um, for the fact that it's going to be the first geothermal plant in British Columbia and Canada. And we are here to explore the high-level technical details of Tudeka geothermal project and dive into what this project means for our people and how this is a poster child for the energy transition. Great, thanks, uh, Charlene. Can I uh, can I jump in here and introduce myself as well? I'm John Ebel, the, the geothermal programs manager, as as uh, Joe mentioned, and I'm uh, one of the founders and director at Barclay Project Group. This uh, Barclay Group has been in business for over 20 years now, and we, uh, we've been developing clean energy projects primarily for uh, remote communities in, uh, around British Columbia and the Yukon. Many of them are indigenous communities. And uh, my background prior to that was in, was in actually biology and, and, and environmental consulting. And so I came about this in a pretty green, sort of from a green approach, and, uh, and I've had the fortune to, to work on some really great projects right from the very concept of right through to operation. And uh, most of our projects have been in the hydropower world. Uh, we're these days building more and more solar type projects. We're even working on the first wave project in Canada here at Barclay Group. But uh, we're extremely excited to be working with Port Nelson First Nation uh, on the two-day geothermal project and to have a, a champion like Charlene to work with uh, to profile this project. So. Thank you guys for your introduction and the introduction to the project itself. Now, my audience knows about geothermal. I mention it probably every show because of my work at PetroLearn and because of my, my general background being a, a geothermal geoscientist. One thing we really haven't covered much is, is going from the resource to actual power production. So I'd like to go over that in a little bit more detail using Tudeka as, as kind of that case study example. So let's start with the resource. What, what exactly is the resource that we're producing from? Things like temperature, depth, flow rate, and, and you mentioned that this is the, this is the Clark Lake gas unit. What, I guess, what formations are we really looking at and how are we producing out that power? Okay, I think um, John would be best to answer this question. Sure, I'm happy to, to jump into this one. Uh, the, we were very fortunate when, when we started looking at the Clark Lake field because it, it's a, one of the oldest and most productive gas fields in British Columbia. And it's truly nearing the end of its life right now. There's still a few active wells that are producing gas. But generally, it's, uh, it's, it's now time to transition to something else in that area. We had 60 years of gas data. And, and with that, there was a, a large amount of information known about temperatures of these wells. There were hundreds of wells drilled in that field. And we knew the temperature. We knew pressures. We knew uh, that there was a lot of brine, a lot of, of good flow rates within the reservoir. Um, so we began with kind of an explored geothermal project. And, and if you, I'm sure over the years when you've talked about geothermal projects, you've, the exploration of geothermal is a very expensive component of it. So not only did we have a lot of data, and because it was a lot of data, academia had studied this, this Clark Lake field 
on a conceptual level about what it would look like as far as a geothermal project. So there was a good decade of, of, of academic studies and papers. So we took that, we went in with a, with a known resource. We didn't know the exact details of it and we're still getting to that stage, but we do know that we do have a, a good mid-range geothermal resource. And then, uh, so what we know is that uh, there's, a, there, there's a, the Clark Lake field, which was, the reservoir itself was a, a dolom, is a dolomite reservoir that was at one time, 200 million years ago, a tropical coral reef. And it's now uh, transitioned into a very porous dolomite reef that is, that's, it's about 1900 meters to 2500 meters in thickness below the surface. And it's very porous. We expect to be able to pump around 125 kilograms or liters per second of uh, flow. And we also expect the temperatures to be in the range of 120 to 130 degrees Celsius. And uh, we'll know a lot more about that because as of tomorrow, we have our electric submersible pump running. We have wells and we will be beginning our pump test in the next few days. So uh, that is really. Uh, that's an exciting point for us at this stage. Now, uh, we're going to bring this brine to the surface, and we're going to, it's going to be pumped to the surface, it'll go through a heat exchanger, and it'll be pumped right back down into the reservoir again. And when it, uh, it comes in the heat exchanger, it'll be passed to a, a, a secondary geothermal working fluid that will, that boils at a low temperature, and when that, as soon as that brine, that working fluid hits that brine, it will expand into vaporize. And when it does, it'll be, and that pressure, the pressure that's created will be, will be blasted against a turbine, which will spin, and create the rotational force that can be turned, used to turn a generator. And that's how we create the electricity. After that fluid passes through the turbine, it'll be condensed, and recirculated to to complete the cycle all over again. So that's why it's, it's a binary geothermal power plant and uh, it's working on a mid-grade temperature of, of 120 to 130 degrees Celsius. And uh, we'll have, so I'll, I hope that uh, kind of, I hope that explains it uh, to the audience. Uh, there's of course extra temperature beyond after it comes out of the, out of the turbine after it's condensed, there's still temperatures you can take off. And there will be also out of the brine when it comes through the heat exchanger, there'll also be additional temperatures that we can we can extract. And those will be used for those will be lower temperatures, but they'll still be very hot and we'll be to use them for all sorts of other resources and opportunities as well. That's a very good explanation on binary geothermal systems. So thank you for that. What what amount of power production in terms of electricity are you expecting from the Tudeka geothermal system? So the, go ahead. Oh, thanks, John. Um, so the facility is currently being designed to um, have a capacity of between seven and fifteen megawatts, and we believe that the resource is pretty strong, and the potential is much higher than what we are designing the facility right now. Um, you know, just what John said, we're really excited about going through this testing phase and to see what we can come up with. 
um, you know, it's, it's just been such a great project. And, you know, when we went out there to do the blessing ceremony, I just got shivers up my arms, just thinking about like, this is coming into life. And, you know, John and his team and everybody working towards this has just put so much energy into it. And so the two day ka, you know, with the, with the resource there, there's going to be a lot of different, um, financial models that will have to be reviewed and looked at but uh with everything that just it just seems like everything's just coming together just really nicely and and i'm just proud of the work that barclay group has done this far i'd add to that uh thank you charlene and i'd add that uh the reef is very large it's 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 there's lots of room there's room for multiple power plants on the reef we have to to use multiple power plants because we do we don't want to transmit the resource in the pipes the hot fluid in the pipes for too long of a distance because obviously after a while that gets expensive and you get losses in temperatures etc but we we figured that, that we can have a a power plant in the in the range of 18 to 20 megawatts in size um, with the mid-range resource that we have and we could have multiple numbers of those power plants at this stage though our market is limited because the Fort Nelson region is is powered by one gas plant, and it has, and it's also uh, it's not interconnected with the British Columbia utilities grid. So, so really, our domestic market for electricity is about seven megawatts, and that's why our, the low end of our of our production capacity might be seven megawatts because we look we're definitely looking to displace all of that gas fire generation in the region with geothermal generation for domestic electrical demand. There is some growing opportunities with industrial demands in the region. Um, they're not certain yet. And uh, we are also exploring many ways that we can build this power project larger so that we could have a, an economy of scale that would really help with the, the cost of production. So we're looking at We've explored lots of things like, uh, for uh, hydrogen is a good example of can we produce, can we produce hydrogen in the region? It is the terminus of the Northern Railway. It is actually a, an energy uh, dispatch locate hub. There is, um, you know, the diesel is, is brought to Fort Nelson by train and then it's offloaded onto trucks and it's trucked into Northern Canada from Fort Nelson. And right now, if you look across the road from the from where Charlene's sitting today at the band office, there is uh, tank farms of diesel, and it's it's a it's a great vision to think that maybe we could actually start to displace some of that diesel with hydrogen, uh, using uh, geothermal and electricity to produce the hydrogen. So, um, the, so we're really in the in the midst right now, first of understanding the resource to to the degree that we can fully design and build out the power plants. But secondly, um, to exploring, as Charlie mentions, lots of options, lots of value-added options for, for ways of producing a larger, building a larger generation facility and using that electricity for all sorts of interesting developments in, in the region and in the north. That is, that's really exciting. There were a few things in there that I wanted to, to touch on. The, the fact that you pointed out the size of, of the reservoir, this, the dolomite being 
anywhere from 1900 to 2500 meters thick and and that sheer size of the reservoir it's something that we don't always think about in oil and gas that in oil and gas your reservoir and what you can actually produce is just the very top part where you have the oil or the gas whereas in geothermal if you're producing from that same reservoir you really have that whole thickness because wherever the water is and and also to almost a more important extent where the temperature is that is your your full reservoir so it is a it's almost hard to it's a, it's a mind shift thinking about how large this reservoir is when really it it becomes significantly greater than the section that was produced for gas it becomes the entire formation i think that's an important point that you you just discussed because that means there will be locations where you can have multiple power plants it's not just the very top of that reef and then something that i i don't know if it was intentional or not what i what i heard you saying was this this goal of really building out a green energy infrastructure and kind of this green future for the Fort Nelson area where right now you only have that seven megawatts of demand, but you're trying to find ways to, to increase that demand or, or ways you could sell more green energy to, to expand that, that known resource. I, I guess all of this, you, the Clark Lake field has been, you said around for 60 years producing and i see this clear clear shift and this clear motive of going towards the green energy that is still there i'm just curious are there are there any other possibilities for example with such a long oil and gas history was horizontal drilling ever ever discussed or did that ever come through the the region yeah, so, you know, Fort Nelson First Nation has, you know, spent a considerable amount of time envisioning our future for, you know, how we want to see it for seven generations ahead when it comes to economics, sustainability, environmental stewardship, and the health and wellness of our people. And historically, um, the Clark Lake field was a gas reservoir, a dwindling gas field, which was is now being repurposed um, for this geothermal plant. And, um, you know, gas producers have continuously struggled to deal with the hot water in this well, and it had always been recorded as having very high temperatures. Um, Because this is one of the main infrastructures that was put in place um, when oil and gas was coming to Northeast BC, it had been in our community for over 60 years. And so we've had a lot of uh, interaction with this pipeline because it's right next to our community and in our community. Um, And when it would snow, if it was like four feet of snow, you would just see that the pipeline was completely melted and all the snow around it was melted. So we knew something definitely was happening down there. But uh, with the economy falling in Fort Nelson, we lost our forestry industry. And when that 
dropped. Um, you know, people just moved right over to oil and gas. They were making better wages and you know nobody was looking at forestry as a problem that we have to deal with to get back online everyone was just transitioning to oil and gas and getting better jobs and you know it uh this this um geothermal opportunity just became like this huge game changer because it's something totally new for our people it's totally new for people in canada and and bc you know so there was a lot of pushback um from maybe well, a lot of pushback from locals and, and people that just didn't understand what we were trying to achieve here. But I think that um, now that we have gone through the process and, you know, we're making headway, um, people are starting to um, really support the project and look at the project with a different light. And so with that, um, the Fort Nelson area has had, you know, some of the biggest um, gas plants in North America here operating for like 50 years. And with that, um, you know, that's where we're getting our power from currently is from the gas plant that transfers it over to this little small BC hydro station. And, um, you know, they were the biggest polluter uh, in G- in greenhouse gas emissions for decades and one of the highest taxpayers. And as you travel more north, Um, you get more remote. So that means that there's no transmission lines. Um, People are running their generators, um, their cities and their homes off diesel or oil or propane. So we find that uh, this project is a real opportunity for for us to um, look at ways to bring our economy, um, you know, back to Fort Nelson in a green way. And also, um, you know, really provide opportunity for the youth and people that live in our territory. And, um, you know, so that they don't have to leave our community to go find jobs. And that's one thing that really was um, sad to see is that a lot of people lost their homes and their livelihood with the with a combination of forestry and, and the gas, oil and gas fields shutting down. So I think that um, as the gas, uh, the Clark Lake gas field had been depleted, this geothermal project offers an exciting new industry that really can revitalize our entire region and really give hope for food security as we move into the future. Um, we've seen so many challenges with greenhouse gas emissions, and we've seen how devastating um, fracking can be in our territory in such a short period of time especially when we are not involved. And so we're really excited about, you know, showing people that, you know, we can, you know, move forward in a green energy space and be a nation, a first nation that is leading this transition in in Canada um, to help other communities realize that they can do this too. And I think one of the the interesting points um, is that, you know, other than municipalities and government, First Nations are the main um, leading people that are owning uh, renewable projects across Canada. So little projects are are popping up left and right, and most of them have about one megawatt of energy that they're either utilizing in their community or selling back to the grid. So it just shows that, you know, um, you know, we've been here for thousands of years and we take our environment um, 
you know, very seriously. And also we want to be involved in the economy. So we're really trying to strike that balance between economic sustainability and environmental stewardship. And I have to say that, you know, over time, um, just listening to our elders and our land users, you know, we're, we're definitely stepping in the right direction of where we need to go. And I'm so thankful for, I can't say it enough, like people like John and his team and, you know, the First Nation Major Projects Coalition and federal and provincial governments for really stepping up and supporting us with these initiatives. Because one of the main things as a leader that that I always have to take into consideration is not to put my community at risk. And that's really important to me because, you know, we only have so much in our coffers to, to do things and to provide own source revenue to offset programs. And this just really gives us that hope, you know, to not only breathe fresher air into the future and leave something for future generations, but also, you know, have uh, opportunity to have own source revenue so that we can continue to offer the programs and services that the federal funding we get from from Indian Affairs that just doesn't cover what we need to do to be able to look after our elders and our youth and and move forward into the future. So, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about this project. Hey, thanks, Charlene. I, I, can I just add to that a little bit that when I first went to Fort Nelson and I spoke to the chief and council, from day one, it was really clear that, that they were interested in a revenue generating project for sure but just as much they were interested in a socially successful project and that that project needed to be, as Charlene's mentioned here, diverse. It needed to include opportunities for bringing um, youth and families back to Fort Nelson. It needed to create um, quality jobs that were had real incentives to get out and contribute uh, to the community and to the region. And, and we've really designed this project to be a value-added project, uh, to look at opportunities far into the future. And, and, and that's definitely one of the exciting parts of this project. That does sound very exciting. And as you were talking through this, it reminded me of when I was in Alaska doing my PhD research and just hearing about some of the some of the places where I would go to collect data, it was, they, they couldn't get bananas. They had to pay something crazy like $10 a pound for tomatoes. And, and I know those are, those seem, those seem like kind of funny examples, but fresh produce is, I would say very important and something that most people take for granted. And and in in relation to the ability to power and heat your home during the winter, I think that that is, it is kind of a silly example. Why would we worry about tomatoes if we can't even power or heat our home? So it is, it's, it's very cool to hear and, and humbling to hear about just the, the importance of this project and really the, what it means and the, the long-term vision of why this project is is taking off and and what what Tudeka Geothermal will mean for for Fort Nelson. Now I I 
I've, I guess, no real perspective on, on what this means from a, from, from your position as, as the Fort Nelson first nation being, having a thousands of years history on the land. Could you just maybe talk about that a little bit more? Like, what does this mean for, for the Fort Nelson first nation and for the community? Well, thank you, Joe. Um, so the Fort Nelson First Nation, we're like a Cree Dene nation, and we're strong, we're strong, proud, healthy, and self-reliant. And that's that's our motto of um, how we uh, explain ourselves. But our but our ancestors have taught us to be resilient. They've taught us to be innovative and to work hard for future generations. It's always something that we think about um, when we make decisions. And how will this will affect the seven generations to come? How will it affect our great-grandchildren? So you are correct. We, we have been here for thousands of years. And our connection and our, our connection to the land and resources of our territory goes back many generations. Um, you know, our language goes back. We have different dialects, our culture, our stories. And our members know how important it is to uphold the spirit intent of the treaty by inserting our people's rights to their land and taking responsibility to ensuring that future generations are able to live their lives in our territory that in a way that honors our ancestors. And so this, this deep connection with the land and all it has provided is truly a gift. And that's one thing when I got those shivers at that blessing ceremony, I just knew that this is a gift from our ancestors and we need to honor it. So harvesting heat from the earth to produce electricity is a new revolutionary path for our people. And it's going to enhance our ability to advance in the future, especially as you explained with food security. Food security is definitely a challenge here. Um, you know, it's we have about eight months of winter. Um, you know, fortunately, we do have a, a very good growing season for gardens because we get the midnight sun, which, um, you know, we have long, longer days in the summer. So, you know, we only get a couple hours of darkness. And so we do grow, grow great cops when you have a little garden in Fort Nelson. But the potential with the heat source to have over 100 greenhouses will not only change the way we eat, and the way, um, you know, the people of the North eat, because I'll just get into a little of a personal story. Um, you know, growing up in Fort Nelson, you would go grocery shopping and you would get your produce for the week. But by the end of the week, your produce would not be, you know, it'd be rotting or, or whatnot, because it doesn't last that long with the transportation time. And so when I graduated and I went down to uh, Vancouver with my best friend and I met my auntie and she took us to the supermarket and I could not believe the fresh strawberries, the fresh produce that I was seeing in the market. It was like it was just picked and put there and, and the vibrant colors were just amazing. I couldn't believe that that's what actually produce is supposed to look like. Um, you know, so that's one story I always share. And, you know, I just want to be able to provide that opportunity, not only for our members and the local uh, municipality, but also as you travel up north into the Yukon and NWT, 
and, um, you know, into more of the remote communities, the cost of food increases tremendously. So you could try to buy a steak that I just bought here for $17 and you go up to NWT and that steak is going to cost you from $60 to $80, you know, and it goes for the produce. The produce is marked up also like a head of lettuce is going to cost you probably four times the amount that it's going to cost me. And, you know, when I think about, you know, people and the access to food, that is so important. Everybody wants to, you know, provide their children with a nutritious meal, you know, three times a day with snacks. And, you know, we want to be able to support that and be able to do that from Northeast BC and have less transportation time and less cost to the people of the North. Just to put it in perspective, you know that this very, so we've drilled the one producer well and one injection well now, and that's what we're going to use for this pump test. The one producer well, in our worst case scenario, it, 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 our very worst case scenario indicates it will, it will have 21 megawatts of thermal energy in it. And that is enough to run 400 industrial sized greenhouses during the coldest day of the year in Fort Nelson. So, and Fort Nelson has fantastic soil. It has great sun, sunshine. It has a, a lot of thermal availability. So from an agriculture perspective, there's every reason to believe that this, we could actually make this a, a significant agriculture region. And currently, of course, it's, it's not. And uh, that's, that's a pretty exciting vision for sure. Yes, that really is a, an exciting vision. And really to think about the, really what, just that one well can do and and what you can really provide from that i appreciate you sharing the the perspective as the the chief of the fort nelson first nation and from the the indigenous perspective of of what the land means and that deep connection and really the i think what's what's most apparent to me is that seven generation and really forward looking and it makes it so clear why why there is this this um this initiative and this motivation to switch to a low carbon energy source that is local and provides that that energy that food security and provides the way for the community to be lifted up I'm just curious, why geothermal? Why not things like wind, solar, battery energy storage, that kind of, I guess, the other alternatives? You know, we began this this, this whole project with an investigation, an inventory of, of renewable energy opportunities within the region, within the traditional territory of Fort Nelson First Nation. And it... We looked at wind, and there is wind high on mountains, far away from transmission lines, uh, very difficult remote places, places that pre- really you prefer not to build a road to in the first place, let alone transmission lines, etc. We looked at hydro, and a lot of the rivers, there's a huge amount of rivers in the region. It's, it's, it's the northern Rockies, and so there's some big rivers coming out of those mountains, but they're coming in out as low, not low gradient, but just they don't have big waterfalls on them. There, there are, there. Although there's gradient to them, they, they, they 
they're a low-head type hydro project that could be developed. And that in itself would be would require the, the flooding of land. And that was pretty much out of the question. Um, solar, of course, is a wonderful resource up there. It's a very bright and uh, it has a lot of solar resources uh, throughout the year, except for, of course, in wintertime when you really need the energy. So, uh, and then there's biomass and biomass is being considered in the region, uh, but it also is a Northern boreal forest. And, uh, and so that, that has to be done with some care as well. So it, meanwhile, this gas field uh, was, was, you know, was in its final years is depleted for the most part. And it, uh, it's just outside of town where, so it's pretty much the obvious choice. And as I said, there had been, uh, a decade or more of academic evaluations of it that really did start pointing to red towards the fact that we knew this resource and it was the one that was close. It was the one with the greatest opportunities or greatest social opportunities, the least environmental impact, a pretty obvious choice for development. A little history, Joe, that um, they did propose for a, a hydroelectric dam to be um, implemented on the Liard River and it was um, very, very uh, unpopular to not only in the Indigenous communities surrounding the project um, for the fact that it was um, going to take over a very important sacred site, and that would be the Liard Hot Springs, which is a very beautiful space that has um, just a boreal forest as you walk in down this boardwalk that just turns into this amazing tropical um rainforest in a way, right? And you have this beautiful hot springs that's um, classified as the second biggest hot springs in North America. And one thing that um, really saved the project was they found salmon in the Liard River. And uh, this this space is, is just amazing. And, you know, as people learn about this project and if they're traveling the Alaska Highway, I really hope that, you know, they do stop in and, and see the Clark Lake Geothermal Project Tudeka and, you know, have the opportunity to also sit in this hot springs because that's one of the spin-off opportunities that we may be able to, you know, have in Fort Nelson is to create our own spa and, and hot springs from this resource. So there's so many spin-off opportunities and so many things that we're looking at and exploring. But I just invite people to our territory to, to come visit us and to come learn about us and see what we're doing over here. Thank you for the invitation. I think that I'm sure somebody will take you up on it. And I'm sure I will want to take you up on it at some point in the near future. Yeah, that would be great. I, so I, I know recently, I guess the, the project at one point was called the Clark Lake Geothermal Project. Now it is the Tudeka Geothermal Project. Can you, can you explain for the audience and for me, what does Tudeka mean and, and maybe why it was renamed as well? Okay, so, you know, throughout Canada, there's a lot of discussions about reconciliation. And, you know, there's a lot of um, place names in our territories that don't reflect who we are as a people or our values. And so it was really important, um, this being a project that is 100% Indigenous owned by the Fort Nelson First Nation, that we identified a name that would 
you know, suit the project as it moved forward and a name that, you know, we could take pride in. So tu means water in Dene and, and Daka means steam. And so we brought in a community member to design the logo and to help bring the name. She spoke very elegantly at the blessing ceremony, explaining how she came up with the name. She talked to, you know, our locals. She talked to different members. And it was just a very, very beautiful explanation of how she came up with Tudeka. So that was um, band member Carissa Dickey. And just so proud of her work and, and what she does for our community. And so the the Tudeka is... Um, a Dene name, and, you know, it represents us and represents this project as we move forward. And so we thought it was really important to, you know, just remove the the traditional um, gas field name and really honor, you know, as we move forward, the project in a, in a traditional Indigenous name. Thank you for that explanation. I really like that, and it, it, it definitely ties everything in and, and shows the the importance of the project and its and its importance to to your community and and to really the the reconciliation aspect reconciliation is really one of the one of the wonderful spin-offs of this energy project too you know uh, and I think the federal government is, and the provincial government can be you know re- commended for their support and their vision that they they could see how this project was going to address, you know, uh, carbon reductions and emission reductions, but they could also see that it, it that it addressed many social issues as well. And, and one of them is reconciliation. And, uh, and I think it's a great example of that. We were also really pleased that it was a relatively easy Dene name to, to pronounce because it does roll off your tongue beautifully. And uh, we're grateful for that as well. The ones, those of us who can't speak Dene. I agree wholeheartedly with that. I enjoy saying Tudeka and it, it, it does help me because there are many times when I'm cringing as I am pronouncing something in a different language because I I don't speak any other languages. So I always feel a little bit of, I guess a little bit of apprehension because of my, for lack of a better term, ignorance with the pronunciation. So with that, I'm curious with with the future of the Chudeka project, you were talking earlier about the potential for industrial scale food production or, and there, there are so many other downstream activities that you can do with that, that lower grade heat after you've generated the electricity. Do you, do you see any of those in the immediate plan? I guess in, in another roundabout way, how, how are, what, what plans are there on how this will really impact the community in the region? There's, there's quite a bit of work to do along those lines. We're certainly right now at conceptual level. Uh, our, our focus is getting an electrical generation facility up and running. And, um, but at the, while that is going on, we are definitely looking at uh, direct use heat opportunities and, and uh, opportunities for utilizing the additional electricity. 
um, those are those are in study or beginning to be in study now. Uh, where, uh, so, I mean, I can list off that we have industrial heat demand within the region, just uh, across the road from them, and uh, in the in the industrial area, we have, um, a, as we mentioned, um, agriculture is a big part of this. We can look at um, spas. Uh, we can look at definitely district heating and, and heating the community, Fort Nelson First Nations community alone is a, is a, is a quite well located for, for a, a district heating opportunity. And it could be we can take the heat as far as the town of Fort Nelson as well. Uh, these are all being studied right now. We're looking, of course, at uh, what, what's in the brine as far as ge- geochemistry. We're looking at uh, uh, and production of hydrogen, these sort of things. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really, it's a fun and exciting area to be exploring, but we're not that far along down that path at this stage. So I'm guessing I know the answer to this question as well then, but do you have any idea on the types of CO2 savings and greenhouse gas emission savings, say compared to the current, the current electricity that is used in Fort Nelson and maybe the some of those ancillary activities and and products that may come from the Tudekop project. In British Columbia, we have uh, on our British Columbia main electrical grid. It's ninety seven percent clean energy, which was we're very fortunate in that regards. And any industry in British Columbia is supported with all this clean energy. It does give us a bit of a global, um, you know, step up. And, and it's a great place to be, you know, developing industry from. However, in Fort Nelson, that is not the case. Fort Nelson is 100% dependent on gas fire generation and fossil fuel-based electricity. And so techno, uh, industry, it's, it's a disincentive to be operating in Fort Nelson for that reason. Right now, the, um, the, the grid in Fort Nelson is 13 times higher than the BC BC's electrical grid, as far as uh, carbon emissions go, BC's uh, integrated grid is about 40.4, 40 tons of CO2 equivalent per gigawatt hour, whereas uh, Fort Nelson's grid is 530 tons of CO2 equivalent per gigawatt hour, so massively more. Um, that's that's you know it's a this is definitely low-hanging fruit when it comes to uh, carbon carbon reductions in the province of British Columbia. Yeah, it really does sound like it. That is a, it's it's interesting with British Columbia being such a high percentage of clean energy. Yet then you have something like Fort Nelson that that is this almost hub of fossil fuel, which then kind of keeps every the potential for industrial production and industrial uses out so this really it's almost i guess it's it's hard to put a tangible or quantifiable amount on that in terms of the what that could do for the community but just that co2 reduction going from that 530 tons to to essentially zero would be significant and a significant boost to to the as a boost incentive for the economy. And so what, 
what phase of development is the project in right now? Well, we're in the proof of concept phase right now. So as of uh, literally next week, we should be beginning our pump test and, uh, and we will be flowing uh, as much. Well, we have a, the largest electric, electric submersible pump that's ever been run in Canada, as far as we know. Uh, we'll be flowing up to 60 kilograms per second of flow uh, of, and through a testing facility. And we'll be doing that for at least 30 days. And that's our characterization well pump test that is need, needed for the bankability of the project. And once that is done, we will be then evaluating the data that comes out of that test. And that data and the results and the modeling that come out of it will be used to design the geothermal, uh, the, the well field and, and come up with the power plant details. So that much of that design work and analysis will take place in 2022. And we expect to be tendering uh, contracts for power plant equipment and, and drilling, et cetera, by the end of 2022. And by summer 2023, we expect to be into construction of the power plant. And I, I should add, I guess, then that commercial operation date is expected to be somewhere in the spring or summer of 2025. That's very cool. So that really answers the next question. I was going to ask, where do you see the Tudeka geothermal project in the next five to 10 years? So that gives us a good timeline. I was curious, Chief Gale, what what other aspects of, of the project are you hoping to see in the next five to 10 years coming to fruition? Well, in the next five to 10 years, I really envision Tudeka geothermal offsetting 100% of the region's gas-fired electricity generation. I think that is so important that we move away from that and look at ways to, you know, power our municipality and our local um, community um, and the nation and, and, you know, the surrounding industrial sites too. And if we can get some of this power up to our neighbors, I mean, that would be also pretty amazing. Um you know, but uh, as John said, what's what's most important is reducing industrial emissions, um, you know, reducing other greenhouse gas emissions, increasing our, our food security um, through agriculture and tourism. And, you know, also one thing that we're also looking at is providing direct heat to our community buildings and perhaps some of our homes. We know that uh, some of our neighboring nations that are living remotely are, are doing this on a very small scale. Um, so with that, we've had a team of 10 people running and maintaining the Tudeka geothermal itself, and that's providing long-term stable employment opportunities, which is very different than what we had with the oil and gas boom and bust nature. So what would happen there is people would get really good paying jobs, but come spring, they would be laid off. And so with projects like these, it gives people the opportunity to work full time to, um, you know, gain benefits, have vacation and put more than just bread and butter on the table, you know, all year round. So really looking forward to that aspect of the project in what could come and, um, you know, as we move forward, we're just learning so much as we go along. So we're really 
looking at sharing that information with others through engagements like this, um, you know, being on your on your show today, you know, being sitting on panels and just getting other Canadians interested in what we're doing. And especially people that work in oil and gas industry. Um, one thing that I didn't mention in the in- in introduction is that I've worked at the Fort Nelson gas plant for the past 20 years and I'm on a leave of absence for the last three to do my role for the chief of the Fort Nelson First Nation. And I think it's important that, you know, we work in balance and we find opportunities to do things better. Um, You know, oil and gas is something that, you know, we'll all need in our lives. Um, But we have to find ways to, you know, move forward in a greener way. And, you know, really look at ways that we can reduce those greenhouse gas emissions. And also, you know, with COP26 just happening and the commitments that came from world leaders, we're contributing to that. And we're trying our best, you know, as a as a nation to move forward in, in that way. And like um, I said earlier, it just feels pretty amazing to be a First Nation that is leading that transition for Canadians and inviting people in to share that information because the opportunity is so vast and there's so many, you know, um, places in Canada where this can happen. You know, we can do better. If we know better, then we need to do better. Thank you for that. I think that is a a very good way to put it and definitely a, a good vision statement for not only the two-day college geothermal project but also for for canada for the u.s really for the entire world as as you put it if we know better and we can do better then we should do better Mm -hmm. is there is there anything else you guys wanted to say before we jump into the final questions I wanted to say that the the support we've had from the federal government particularly has been spectacular. Uh, I think they've taken, uh, not only have they been, <clears throat> they've really bought into the vision of this project and, uh, and they've, uh, they've been, but they've been very creative in how they can help the project move forward. And, uh, and we're grateful for that. And, you know, and, and that is also reflected in the provincial government who are, are standing solidly behind this project. So I, I definitely think that that's, meant, that's worth the mention. And I'd just like to say to, to our youth and, and to other Canadians that we hope that, you know, learning about this project really uplifts you and helps you um, see that, you know, we can, you know, be a part of green energy in a very positive way, um, especially in a region where we have three of the biggest gas plays in North America. I think that this is a real opportunity for all of us to learn and to really inspire our young people to start advancing their careers in green energy projects. It will really bring um, great employment opportunities in the future. I, I think that this is the way that the world is moving forward. And, you know, I just invite young people just to start learning a little bit more about, you know, renewable project, whether that's solar or wind or geothermal. Um, little things are happening around you. If you just start exploring and doing a little bit of research, you'll see that more and more of this kind of work is being done in, you know, local First Nation communities and other municipalities across the country. Thank you guys for those. They are very good points. 
with that, we are going to jump into the final questions. The first one, what is the most important book you've ever read? I want both of you to to answer these. So whoever wants to go first, most important book. So one of the one of the most important books right now that I think that people should read is called um, An Army of Problem Solvers. And it's to do with reconciliation and solution economies. It's written by Sean Looney with uh, Will Braun. And, you know, he really talks about the importance of First Nation, Re- First Nation reconciliation and the importance of rebuilding local economies. He talks about different um, companies that are working with First Nations, across the country that, um, you know, are there, he's calling them problem solvers because they're looking at social enterprise. They're looking at social entrepreneurs and, you know, looking at ways that they can tackle society's stubbornness about solving today's problems, especially in this country. Um, How do we, you know, create local economies for indigenous people, especially people that are, you know, living in remote communities, you know, and in in the prefects of this book, you know, there's a really important message by Grand Chief Sheila North Wilson, and she's from the Bonnaby Cree Nation. And so she just talks about some of the things that she's seen throughout her life. And it's, you know, something that all of us Indigenous leaders always talk so passionately about, being involved in our economies and looking after our environment and having a better understanding about who we are and our values, our culture, our language. But what she talks about is the lack of opportunity and the lack of jobs and the lack of hope, you know, and with that, it can only lead people in one direction. You know, Indigenous people have been um, dealing with the murdered and missing Indigenous women. It's been deeply ingrained, um, you know, in a lot of our communities, a lot of poverty, massive unemployment, um, rampant diabetes, and just a critical shortage of housing and basic infrastructure. So this book was very important to me. It talked about, you know, some of the challenges and hardships that people have gone through, but also it gave a lot of hope because it showed how um, people can come together whether you're Indigenous or non-Indigenous, how you can work together to, you know, honour the treaties, um, you know, give opportunity, work with Indigenous people. You know, it talked about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and, and the calls to action. So I think this book is is very important because um, it gives you live examples of what other um, entities are doing to be problem solvers. And it also points out the um, need for government to think differently and to change policy so that Indigenous communities can be a part of their economies in a more productive and positive manner. So I really recommend An Army of Problem Solvers, and you can check it out online. You can buy it on this audiobook. It's an affordable book, has some great pictures on there from the community, talks about, um, you know, some of the, 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 gardens and uh, produce that that other First Nations are doing to create an economy within their own, you know, First Nation and selling it to the locals. So there's just so many great examples. And I highly recommend this book by Sean Looney. Well, I'm glad you had 
a nice wise solution there uh, to talk about uh, Chief Gale. Uh, I'm kind of a person of the I'm a person who gets caught up in the moment for sure, and I and I become passionately engaged in what I'm living and experiencing at any time. And as such, I was thinking about this question and knowing that we were going to be asked it, and I I, I just couldn't help but reflecting back to the most recent book I re I read, and uh, this is a book called Beyond the Trees by Adam Schultz, and it's a so he, he writes it's a a, a real time uh, current adventure, Northern Canadian adventure, and it's a solo journey across the Arctic. And although this book is not really a potential game changer, for me it was inspiring and it was, um, it was also great escapism. Um, in this, uh, the, the author canoes across the Canadian Arctic from the west to the east, from the Dempster Highway to Hudson's Bay in one season, and he faces a huge amount of adversity so much up upriver travel and and storms and ice you know that he can't paddle through and seemingly impossible timeline to, in with the in, imposing winter coming on yet through all of that he just logs on optimistically he's positive and he's philosophical and uh mostly amongst the intensity amongst the intensity of the two day cop project which i've been living for the last three or four years now um, I just needed a good escape read at the time, and, and Adam Schultz reminded me that, that I, too, need to save some time for some good adventure for myself, and that it's not, um, that it was, uh, that, that's just very positive and fulfilling, as, as well, just as fulfilling as my job is as well, because I feel very fortunate to do what I do, but um, it was just a good read at the moment. Thank you for those those recommendations i think both of those sound very interesting and and john i think you put it well that sometimes we we just need an escape from what we're dealing with on a day-to-day -day. but as you point out that that book really shows what it takes sometimes that that we can relate to to somebody traveling across across the canadian wilderness because of the because sometimes that adversity is what we are seeing in a in a project at work, and I think it is also important, as Chief Gil, Chief Gale pointed out, the the need for the army of problem solvers and and really seeing what is being done and how we can also contribute to to that that being the solution as opposed to the problem or as opposed to as, as some people used to put it you're either a problem solver you're one of the instigators or you're just a roadblock that's in the way doing nothing so we don't want to be a roadblock or the problem we want to be the solvers so the next question when will we be net zero as a society Hey, I'll take a stab at this question. And I just, you know, as the world makes a push towards net zero by 2050, it is really critical that Indigenous communities play a role in developing the policy and project development in order for this to be achieved. Um, you know, I've sat on many panels and I talked about the need for, um, you know, the batteries to to run these cars, electric cars, right? 
So with that, you know, you're going to need um, so much more lithium, so much more nickel and other different resources that are going to be found in Indigenous communities. So that is why it's so important that Indigenous nations play a critical role in the policy and the, po- the project developments in order for them to be really successful. The opportunities for our nation to participate with government and the private sector, um, there, there's so many things that need to happen. Um, there's a need for, you know, the major infrastructure to be built to meet the demands in, in our community. And all this infrastructure in some form, like I said, will be in our territory, um, you know, so with that will come the mining to try to get to net zero to, you know, get off coal and and other things so that we can, you know, build these batteries and and whatnot. So I think that's something that people need to consider. I'm also um, the chair of the First Nation Major Projects Coalition, which really works with Indigenous communities to find solutions to be involved in major projects over 100 million in their territory. And so we've been doing a lot of work and having a lot of talks about renewable projects and how we can be involved in a meaningful way where we have equity positions or, um, you know, as for the two-day cut, it's 100% Indigenous owned. Um, But with the work we do, we also look at finding ways for access to capital. And, you know, that's one of the major roadblocks when Indigenous communities want to get involved in, in any kind of project, whether that's net zero or something happening in their territory. So those are some of the challenges that um, we face as Indigenous communities in order to be involved in these major projects in in Canada. So with that, um, you know, our members have been working diligently um, up until uh, April of 2022. We're going to be throwing a net zero conference by 2050. And it's hosted, as I said, by the First Nation Major Projects Coalition. You can check out our website online. We're going to have many speakers joining us uh, from international international show and panels. And uh, I think it's a really important discussion that needs to be had because I just don't feel that we're going to have smoother timelines or, you know, um, reduce cost or, you know, get these projects over the line in Canada if Indigenous people aren't involved. So um, we're, we have about 77 members from across Canada. And so our members want to create this conference so that we can talk about what's important to us. We can talk to um, invite the investors in the private sector, you know, government to really have a very good conversation about net zero. The conference will happen at the Western Bayshore on April 25th and 26th. And it is in person and it's also online. So I invite you, Joe, to attend. I, I think it would be very informative and to learn about what Indigenous communities in Canada are doing to be involved meaningfully in major projects that are occurring in their territories. Well, thank you for the invitation. I will have to, I'll have to check the schedule and see and see and try and be there. John, what about you? When do you think we'll be net zero? Well, I feel optimistic that I, that governments finally seem to be making a critical swing towards policies and investments in decarbonization. <clears throat> the Tudica 
geothermal project is a great example of where Canadian government has been progressive and, and creative in its approach. Uh, and and it also has leveraged leverage decarbonization for much broader social objectives as well. So, so that's that's of my optimism. Yet I observe us as individuals seem to not be prepared to, or even maybe interested in doing our part to reduce carbon emissions. On, on just generally, I feel like the, we utilize fossil fuel-based equipment for our entertainment in a growing way, and we leave our pickups idling, and we drive in the biggest vehicles we can quite often, especially when you're out in resource areas. And and this, I find this this I find this people's personal behavior quite concerning. And that's where I'm pessimistic. But I but I but I do wonder if large corporations will be the ones who will find ways to make profits from technological change. You know, the lowering of of emissions or the or the even Technologies such as air capture of carbon and those sort of things, where where there's there's money to be made, and and I think that the corporations are gonna are gonna embrace that in a big way, and and that's where I hold I hold out some hope that we will actually achieve net zero by 2050, and it will probably be money making opportunities that will drive that, uh, and along with government policy, and I really hope that people will the general generally all of us will will really consider what we do on a daily basis as far as our carbon footprint goes it's an interesting take on the on the question and how we would reach net zero by 2050 and i think it it is interesting to kind of combine your two answers where chief gale was was saying that it we do need to include everybody and especially the indigenous communities who are living off the land and who are who are in these remote villages who who right now rely on the fossil fuels so it is it's almost harder to make that that shift to net zero whereas as you point out John some of those changes may be made purely from the from the the profit side and from the commercialization side of saying we can find a way to make money as we drive towards net zero. And so it would be a, it's not only a, a personal and a communal based problem and solution that needs to be found, but it is also a, it is also we're in an industrialized world and a, in a commercial world. So it is also going to be something that if there's money to be made, the, the industries and the corporations will find a way to do so. So the, the last question is actually, what question do you have for me? And I know you both probably have plenty of questions, so feel free to, to ask away. And you, Joe, I was wondering whether you were in Texas during the extreme weather event last winter. I know that's where home is for you. So, uh, and how how do you think geothermal could have played a, a played a role in avoiding that situation? Yes. So I was in Texas. I'm I'm based in Dallas, Texas, and we just like the rest of the state had massive power outages. 
I was one of the lucky ones. My house did not have any any power outages the entire three days. So we actually had my wife's uh, parents over and their dog for the three days. There were five of us plus the dog living in a two-bedroom house for for five days. It, it was it was quite uh quite comfortable quite cozy if you will but it it was one of those things that that i think back to the example that you give with the with the natural gas pipeline and how during the winter that pipeline actually melts all of the snow in in texas that wasn't the case but it realistically it could have been we could have been using some of that heat within the produced water to be heating some of the different processes. And a lot of people point to wind as being the problem, but there were also, I guess, basically there were problems across the board with electricity generation. Wind turbines were down, piles of coal that were supposed to be getting burned for electricity production were all frozen and couldn't couldn't get the fuel into the burner and then natural pipe or natural gas pipelines were freezing up so really it was a almost a comedy of errors and i say that term in a in a sobering light because it 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 wasn't funny in any way there were people dying who didn't need to die and there were there were just lots of issues that that came to light because of that. The way the geothermal, I think, could have could have helped that is being that baseload power that is always on and would have continued to produce and and provided that it was properly insulated, which other pipelines weren't. If the geothermal was properly insulated, which it probably would be so that way you could increase that delta t and save as much of that heat as possible it would have actually done more energy production because of the cooler air temperatures so really geothermal in my mind is the answer <laughs> not not for the whole not for the whole state and the whole problem but geothermal would not have been one of the powers that would have fallen off during the the winter freeze it would have actually been one of the ones that was trying to support the entire grid thank you yeah very interesting awesome well joe i have a question for you i'm curious to know if you know which indigenous land you reside on that is a it is a good question and at one time, I did know it was it was probably a few months ago. My wife actually looked up what indigenous land we lived on because she was curious and because of the it was because of Columbus Day, which for some areas has been renamed um indigenous people's day and so we were curious and wanted to look it up and wanted to wanted to talk to our son about it and tell him 
where we lived. And I know it's it's bad of me because that was only a little more than a month ago, but I don't remember. And as I look at a map of the Native American tribes of, of Texas, it it is unclear. It's either the Wichita or Caddo, but I I don't think it was one of them. I think there was a another tribe that overlapped that was the that was more the the primary indigenous peoples of the area. Yeah, I believe there's the um Comanche and the Takana. Takawa. Well, well thank you. Thank you the, for sharing. Um I, I yes. just really encourage you to to uh reach out and to know of the indigenous people where, where you live on, because I think it's so important, you know, so many treaties were signed and those treaty, those treaties were signed for peace and sharing and they allowed for newcomers to come to the land so that they could bring their families and, you know, prosper and provide a good life in a free world. And, um, you know, when people come to live among treaty nations, it means that you're treaty too. And that's one thing that I remind people when I speak at, at different forums is that, you know, we really need to honor the treaties and that's a part of reconciliation. They're not seed and surrender treaties, they're peace and sharing treaties. And we just need to get back to, you know, those kind of concepts of what it means to be a treaty person. So Mussy, hi, hi. Thank you. Thank you for that. And I, I completely agree. And it is a, it is something that I will be striving to do more of and keep that in on my mind as I am out in nature and spending time on the land. Well, Chief Gale, John, thank you guys for joining me on this show. And thank you for your time today and for sharing the story of Tudeka and everything, everything going on in the in the Northeast British Columbia and the Fort Nelson First Nation. Well, thank you, Joe. I just wanted to thank you for having me here today, and I look forward to hearing the interview. And hopefully, uh, into the future, we can give you an update and have another discussion. Yes. I, I echo that. I, I was, it was a pleasure talking this morning, uh, and it's a pleasure to share what we're doing. We are obviously very excited about it, and, and um, so thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. You are more than welcome to be on the show whenever, whenever you want. You've been a pleasure to host on the show. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. Please do me a favor. Give me a five-star rating and leave a review. Doing these two simple actions will help these stories reach a wider audience. And if you can't tell from this story today, these are stories that we do need to share worldwide, and we need to celebrate them, honor them, and and continue pushing for that for that net zero target and that that green future that we all want. If you want to hear more great energy stories and keep up to date with the energy industry, connect with OGGN on LinkedIn or visit OGGN.com. 
if you're into free stuff, go and visit the Can Canon co-working space and mention OGGN. They will give you a free day pass. I work from there when I'm in Houston and I really enjoy it. So if you go, tell them about OGGN, check it out, see what I'm talking about. And if you have any questions, comments, corrections from anything I've said, or you have a story to share, send me an email. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.